chapter 9, the word of God, and able to grow you and open your eyes. As Jesus passed by, he was leaving the temple, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi or teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and he made mud with the saliva. And then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and he said to him, go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So the man went and he washed and he came back seeing. Now here's where things get a little comical and absurd. So the neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is this not the man that used to sit and beg? Some said, that's the guy. Others said, no, but it looks like him. But the, guy, the man kept saying, I'm the man, I'm the man. I'm the guy, it's me. So they said to him, then how, do we, how are your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus. He made mud, he anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I washed and I received my sight. And they said to him, well, where is he? And he said, I don't know. And then they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind. And now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him, how did you receive your sight? And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man, talking about Jesus, this man is not from God. He doesn't keep the Sabbath. But other Pharisees said, how can a man who's a sinner do stuff like this, do such signs? And there was a division that broke out among the Pharisees. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? And the formerly blind man said, he is a prophet. Now the Jews did not believe what had, what he, that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called his parents. Now the parents are involved of the man who had received his sight. And they asked them, is this your son who, uh, who you say was born blind? Uh, how then does he now see? And the parents answered, yep, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's old enough. He can speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews uh, had already agreed that if anybody should confess Jesus to be the Christ at that time, the person was to be to put out of the synagogue or kind of excommunicated. Therefore, his parents said that. He's of age. Just ask him. So for the second time now, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And the man answered, Whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. And they said to him, well, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered them, I've told you already, and you won't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they hated him, reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we're disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. Now, the formerly blind man, who's kind of getting into it with these people way up the pecking order from him, he says, this is amazing. You don't know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. 
We know that God doesn't listen to sinners. He's saying just kind of wicked, godless people. But if anybody is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. And never since the world began has it been heard that anybody opened the eyes of a man born blind. So if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him just with just hatred spewing out of him. They said, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us. And they cast him out. Jesus, at some point later, heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, hey, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard him say these things and they said to him, are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Let's pray. Jesus, our hope every week is that we're not opening a book reading of someone that lived a long time ago and did some stuff, and now we're supposed to figure out what it means and apply it to ourselves. Our hope is that you are the living, resurrected King of all. You are our maker and our sustainer. You are the one who brought us here tonight, and you are the only one who can open eyes and open hearts and open ears. I can't. My friends in the seats can't either. So we pray to you now. We call upon you as living, resurrected king to heal our blindness tonight, whether it is total blindness or, you know, near vision or far vision or just we can't see you clearly. Help us, we pray in your name. Amen. So this story begins in what would have been a pretty typical conversation between Jesus and his entourage, his disciples. Jesus' teaching style was kind of like teach as you go. If something happened or his disciples saw something that confused them, they'd say, hey, teacher, why, why did that happen? Or why did you say this? Why did you do that? So in this particular instance, the giant walls of the temple, some of you have been to Jerusalem, you've, you've seen some of the walls that are still standing. These massive walls of the temple are over their shoulder, and they're walking down these steps where there were always poor people, disabled people, blind people, always begging for money from the people coming out of the temple. And seeing this blind man sparked a theological question for Jesus's disciples. And the question was of the variety or along the lines of a question we're familiar with, why do bad things happen to good people kind of question, right? Or why does God allow such pain and hardship to happen to people or to persist Um, Maybe to personalize it from the blind man's perspective, uh, the question that gets sparked is, God, why did you make me this way? Why did you let this happen to me? Why have my prayers for restored sight seemingly fallen on deaf ears for so long? For the disciples, it's not a personal question. For them, it's philosophical, hypothetical, theological. They ask in passing. They weren't intending to talk to this guy or help him in any way. It was just kind of like sparked a question. They asked it. For them, it's more like uh, kind of a case study. Those questions you sit up maybe with a roommate or a street mate till two in the morning asking or debating maybe. 
But for the blind man, it's not philosophical at all, is it? It's the only life he's ever known. Blindness. I don't know what of age means, how old he was, but he's at least probably your age, maybe older. Uh, that's how long he's persisted, lived in this state of blindness, helplessness, dependence. His parents were probably nearby because he was attached to them at the hip. They had to take care of him. And because he's blind, he has no idea that he is six feet away from God himself, literally. He has no idea who just walked past him. He doesn't even know to cry out. He doesn't ask anything of Jesus because he doesn't know that it's Jesus who's passed by. I should mention that some of you already, just in these first few moments, are hearing the passage read. You're already beginning to resonate with this particular guy. Either you yourself do because of questions you're asking, why, why, or you're the brother or the sister or the best friend of somebody who's asking this kind of gut-grown question of why have you done this, God, or why did you take this, or why am I this way? And though other people might debate them in books, or you might hear sermons about them, for you they're personal, not philosophical. These are the things that keep us up at night. For instance, why does God allow me to live in such crippling depression? Why can't I be like every other friend in my group who seems to skip through life? They have problems too, but there's not this dark, suffocating cloud always on top of them. And I pray and I pray and I pray, and I still wake up doomed. God, why is my mom the one that's plagued with recurring cancer? Why did my little brother have to be born with Down syndrome? Why did God make me this way? Whatever the this way is, my body this way, my mental state this way, my personality this way, my sexuality this way, why did he make me this way? And when we start to expand these questions, I think now they resonate with all of us, don't they? All of us resonate with this and see ourselves in this particular account. Interestingly, though, Jesus, as he often does, doesn't give them a, a straight answer. Or he does, but he says it's neither A nor B. You asked me, is it this or is it that? And I said, no. It's not that this man is a sinner and God is punishing him for his sin. Suffering is not punishment like karma, God getting back at you. Um, and he says also it's not from some genetic or hereditary thing. It's not that his parents did something and now he's paying the bills for it. He said something that is beautiful to some of you because you're far enough along in your own suffering and your own grown questions, and it's hard for some others of you who are very early on in something that's just happened to you, and you're still trying to get your bearings. But what Jesus says in answer to their question is in these first few verses. And he said, this man was born blind so that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was born blind so that the work of God might be displayed in him. We need to do a little bit of theological work that, that arises out of this particular passage before we push on though. And come up and talk afterwards. Um, because of the clock, this is going to be briefer than you want it to be, briefer than I want it to be. 
And we don't have time to exhaustively talk about this, but I hope we can say a few things that are helpful before we push any further into this. Here's the gist of the theological work I want to suggest for you, or the, question, the, the, the thing that I want to suggest to you. Perhaps the question, why did God make me this way, or why has God done this to me, perhaps it's not the most fruitful and helpful and illuminating question to ask. It could be that that's barking up the wrong tree and is not going to lead you to the helpful clarity you seek. Perhaps a more helpful and illuminating question in the spirit of what Jesus is saying in this passage could be this. Why, God, why have you allowed whatever, sin, evil, darkness, the effects of the fall, why have you allowed darkness to affect me in this way? Father, why have you allowed hardship to linger in me for so long or linger around me for so long? Those are questions that Jesus himself authorizes you to ask. Jesus himself hands you a script and says, these are fruitful, helpful, illuminating questions to ask. Why the change? Why the twist? Because God did not make you bent. He did not make you broken. He did not make you bad. He did not make you warped. God creates humanity perfect and holy and whole and functional. Sin has ravaged all of it. Sin has infected all of it, vandalized all of it, brought chaos into all of it. And the reason we need this clarification is because we need to grow in placing blame where it belongs. We need to grow in aiming our hatred and aiming our anger on a proper bullseye, like a rifle shot, and not like a shotgun that just indiscriminately, haphazardly shoots anger, shoots blame, shoots accusation everywhere, and accidentally ends up taking out tons of innocent bystanders as casualties. Some of you know what I'm talking about. The Bible is a casualty of what's accidentally become accusations against God himself. Christianity as a whole has become an innocent bystander murdered by an errant bullet of your anger. God himself, Jesus himself, you're not here tonight to see Jesus or learn about here, you're here for other reasons and this question's catching you by surprise. Blame, hatred, anger for these things, be it blindness, be it the state of your mental health, be it the way your body is, the way your family is, the way your sexuality is, the confusions that lie there, lie principally in one place and one place only. Evil, the devil, darkness, whatever, whatever Bible diagnosis word you want to slap on it, that's that's the bullseye of our hatred, of our anger, of our blame. That's the proper bullseye of those things. It does not belong in the creator and sustainer. Blame for blindness does not go to the creator of the eye, but the one who's gouged the eye out, out of hatred. 
which is the devil, which is evil, which is darkness. There's the, the great apologist from India, uh, Ravi Zacharias. You hear him a lot here. I talk about him a lot. He, he always says, to blame God for the tragic effects of evil in our lives would be like blaming Henry Ford for the tragic effects of a DUI. Sure, he created the automobile, but he never purposed it to be weaponized in such a chaotic and careless manner. Our blame should lie on the drunk driver, not the car maker. Our blame for these things, and the Psalms pour fuel on the fire, they invite your hatred, invite your anger, invite your wrath to align with God's hatred, God's anger, God's wrath towards these terrible, terrible, painful things. If we learn to, 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 to aim our anger, aim our hatred, aim our blame, instead of God or Christianity or the Bible becoming a dead casualty that can now offer you no help, he's still there. He's still speaking, he's still lifting, he's still helping, he's still putting into perspective. Now, you should be thinking right now, well, Ben, that doesn't get God off the hook. Maybe God is not like the immediate cause of these terrible things that happen inside and around all of us, but he's sovereign, isn't he, Ben? He's powerful, isn't he? He's in control of everything. So didn't he allow these things? Um, yes, he is powerful. Yes, he is sovereign. And trying to weasel your way out of this predicament by saying he's not creates far more problems than it solves. Yes, he's in control of everything. No, nothing can happen without his allowing it. But listen to me. Hear this. This is not a philosophical answer to the question. It is a personal answer to that dilemma. God has chosen to eliminate the darkness of this world, not through a magical snap of his finger, not through magically immediately lifting humanity out of darkness, out of chaos, out of evil the second that we fell or walked ourselves into it. The way that God has chosen to eliminate the darkness of this world is by living in it for 33 years in the person of Jesus, by absorbing that evil every single day of his life, by resisting that evil, by conquering that evil on a cross as the victim of that evil, as the victim of everything terrible and painful and horrible. So for God, this stuff we're talking about is not a philosophical question. It is personal, most of all, to him. I had a professor in seminary who said, he was, he was an apologetics professor, uh, defending the Christian faith professor. And he said, you know, obviously I'm an apologetics professor. I get the question a lot. Why does God allow evil and suffering in the world? And he said, that one makes sense to me. I feel like I have an easy, though heavy answer to that. Uh, we've talked about it already. But he said, the thing I've never been able to figure out is why God allowed the evil and pain in the world to all be absorbed in himself. That's the piece he said that doesn't make sense to me. The cross has never made sense to me. I have never been able to wrap my head around why God would allow evil to intercept him. And in doing so, conquer it. God is in the patient, painstaking, back-breaking work of restoration. God is not the, uh, the owner of the priceless, vintage, antique Rolls-Royce 
that when it gets totaled says, well, those were good days that I could drive that around town. I'm just going to get the insurance money and go buy something new. He is in the work of towing that back to his shop and over the next 30 or 40 years, painstakingly restoring it to better than it was before, investing his very life in the project. I know this is not a quick, simple answer. You know those answers don't exist, don't you, by this point in your life? But this is the personal answer. This is God's incarnated answer. It's his redemptive answer to what he's doing about the terrible things that make us lose sleep. So to return to the story, Jesus tells his disciples, this dear man was born blind so that the restorative, redemptive works of God might be displayed in him. And therein lies that first heavy point. I told some of you it's beautiful because you're, you've been in this valley of suffering that you're in a long time. For some of you, you just got into it and it's hard to hear. But that principle is that your life is a canvas and God is the painter. Your life is not a, a canvas and you're the painter. Our life is a canvas and grace is the painter. Which means... Things happen to us and in us for our gracious God's greater purposes. And all the things that happen to us are not simply in service to whimsical dreams or desires of how I wanted freshman year to go or senior year to go or my life to go. And I'm not being flippant here because I know the caliber of some of the things that y'all are dealing with. But do you understand? They're two different missions. God is the errand boy um, who becomes the servant of our whims and our usually briefly informed desires, or he's the brilliant Monet or Rembrandt who has taken an ordinary canvas and has painted something worth tens of millions of dollars on top of regular old cloth. Joni Erickson Tata is a um, famous author, speaker, theologian. She was not born a quadriplegic quadriplegic, but became one at some point midlife uh, in a diving accident, and so has no function below her shoulders. And she goes around um, particularly focusing on uh, encouragement and uh, helping other people with physical disabilities. She said this, sometimes God allows what he hates to accomplish what he loves. Again, it might make sense in your head. It's hard to live inside of that quote if it's in your life right now that God has allowed something that he hates and you hate to accomplish something you love and he loves. Or what Counselor Tim Lane says, God will sometimes take us where we have not planned in order to produce in us what we could not achieve on our own. That's why the detours and the dead ends and the broken down cars. That's why life is not this linear drive under blue skies on the Blue Ridge Parkway, but often feels like rush hour when you get in wrecks and hit nails. For this reason, God is taking us to places we did not plan to accomplish in us, produce in us something we could not and would not achieve on our own. For this blind man, there was something essential. There was something necessary, something non-negotiably important to his faith in Jesus and to the faith of people around him that he must be born blind. 
for this temporary amount of time. His life was not just about his eyesight and getting it back. His life was about something so much more important than that. So to God, unlike everybody else, this blind man's not this anonymous guy. To the disciples, he's an anonymous guy who's an object lesson for a theological quandary. To God, this man is famous. He's a celebrity in the kingdom of God. Jesus was just waiting to meet him. How do I know he's a celebrity? How do I know this blind man's a big deal? Because 2,000 years later, in a different language, on a different side of the earth, you and I are talking about him right now, and not about any of the other people who are around the temple that day. Do you see what I mean? What happens when Jesus Christ, the painter, gets a hold of an ordinary little piece of cloth? Magic happens. Redemption happens. Restoration happens. And it doesn't just affect you, it affects those around you. The works of God were demonstrated in him, not just for him, but for you tonight. How else do I know that uh, Jesus, that, that this guy was a big deal? Because Jesus didn't just teach about him. And Jesus doesn't just teach about the suffering you're going through. Jesus touches this man, specifically in the place of his suffering. Jesus touches you, meets you specifically in the place of your suffering. This is odd. The first thing that this blind man would have experienced, because he's blind, because nobody was live commentating what was happening, and next, Jesus is going to do this, and next, he's going to do this. What he first would have experienced is somebody coming and pushing their eye, in his, or their finger in his eye with dirt. Is he thinking, is this punk teenagers getting another laugh out of my expense the way they always do? Or did Jesus, as he approached him, whisper, hey, it's Jesus. You're okay? Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And that's why he let a man rub dirt in his eye. Jesus doesn't just teach about his suffering, he touches it. His disciples, it was a blind man to Jesus. It's a person. So of course this blind man is just like you and for a long season of his life he's sitting on the steps of the temple year after year and he's saying, God, why me? Why me? I'm here to pray at the temple. When's the blindness going to go away? Ever? Do you hear me? And now he was just beginning to see again, not just with his eyes but with his heart. And he begins to see, I've always been a canvas and grace has showed up today to begin painting. Tim Keller's another name you know. He says... He is. He kind of uh, lengthened a quote from Lord of the Rings when uh, Sambo asked Gandalf, will one day everything sad come untrue? And Keller extended that and he said, every day everything sad is going to come untrue for those who are in Jesus and it will somehow be greater for having been broken and lost. You love the redemption story much more than the success story, don't you? Don't you resent the success story? but you love the redemption story. It's why we love the underdog. It's why we fight for those people. Hear me, the genre of grace is not success stories. It is redemption stories. And redemption stories are painful and circuitous and long and hard. Success stories are easy, but it's just you and your pride, 
and your loneliness to fix all that you're in. The last thing I just want to say quickly, and then we're going to end with that second point that I said we'll be briefer on. This is not just the blind man's plight that we're talking about. Jesus isn't just one who empathizes with him, touches him in his place of suffering. But what I'm, everything that I've been talking about so far is unbelievably true of Jesus too. Of Jesus himself too. It's another reason why your suffering is not hypothetical or philosophical to God, though it is to all of us on our porches debating whether he cares about us or not. To him, it's personal because this was the life he stepped into. I've already alluded to it. 33 years voluntarily stepping into the epicenter of hell itself, which is this broken, spiraling world. And Jesus was known by the nicknames man of sorrows, a man well acquainted with grief, despised and rejected, afflicted and crucified, betrayed by every friend that he had, nowhere to lay his head. That's God. That's his legacy for 33 years of life. That's what he had to show for it. He sees this man because he knows this man, because he knows this story, because it's his story. So God does not just understand your suffering because he's God and can figure it out because he's omniscient. He's lived your pain before you lived it. And he's on the other side as a friend saying, not in simplistic hallmark ways, just trust me. He's saying, I've walked this too. We're going to do this together. What should we do with all of this? If you're wondering what should I do with this kind of a stuff, uh, know first that faith in Jesus doesn't mean papering over really bad stuff and calling it good. Blindness is bad. Let's be clear on that. Suffering is bad. Sexual struggles are bad. Mental health struggles are bad. Faith in Jesus isn't saying, oh, there's a silver lining. Oh, there's some sunshine behind it. No. Faith is learning to hate what God hates and be angry about what God is angry about and to blame what God blames. That is not faith. Faith is simply seeing these things as temporary, as conquered teachers who now have to serve you, even if it's serving you through pain. Nor is faith in Jesus figuring out exactly how will God use this disability, this struggle, this burden, this sin pattern. God doesn't say you have to figure exactly out how he's going to use this. And we should be careful telling our friends how God's using their suffering. We should tread carefully there because that can hurt. God does not ask you to figure it all out. He simply asks you to hold on to him and to know that he will display his work in you and in this, whatever this is. Faith in Jesus is waiting to draw conclusions until you've seen the finished product. It's not rushing into the Sistine Chapel one month into the project and saying, this is ugly. What is this? What's he doing on these, all these things over there for? You got to fill up the whole ceiling. Faith in Jesus is a painful, groaning, waiting, lying on your back, saying, I can barely see a silhouette of anything beautiful, but I know who has the brush in his hand, and I know where he's taking this, and I can walk with him just one more day as he works. That's faith. Okay? We're going to shift gears for our brief second point. The last thing we'll look at is saving faith is a simple studying, seeing faith. This, is, this occupies the bulk of the verses in chapter 9, 
But as you saw, it's one long back and forth who done it? Who did the healing? Why did he do it? How did he do it? He couldn't have done it. He's not from God. He is from God. Where's the guy? I'm the guy. It's 35 verses of that, <laughs> which really is about, it's an ironic depiction of everybody in this story was blind, not just the blind man. The blind man, ironically, is the only one who actually could see. Everybody else was blind as a bat, especially the religious teachers, the Pharisees, were as blind as everybody else. Uh, I wanted to get practical here and try to just speak something to us that's like a live issue in our lives right now. This is not from me. This is from a guy named Charles Taylor who wrote a very monumental book a long time ago uh, and then Tim Keller interacting with it. But they're talking about these things that like the Pharisees, what made the Pharisees blind to Jesus, blind to God right in front of their face? What was it? They already had ideas about who God was. They already had ideas about who the Messiah was supposed to be. That narrative, that alternate belief blinds them to the real thing. These other narratives that you and I latch onto for meaning and purpose in life blind you to God. They're the reason Jesus looks boring to you or indifferent to you or irrelevant to you or far away to you or distant to you. Here's some of the narratives. Right now, in our culture, these are the secular plot lines, secular narratives. The identity narrative is you've got to be true to you. You've got to look on the inside, see who you are, and be true to yourself. Well, what happens when Jesus asks you to pick up a cross and die to yourself and deny yourself and sometimes deny what most naturally, physiologically feels right to you and to follow him? Do you see how that identity narrative, this cultural uh, incoherence, will blind you to Jesus' call and his words and who he actually is? The happiness narrative. You should never sacrifice your happiness for anybody else. In the end, you can't sacrifice your happiness for other people. What about the call to love your neighbor? Doesn't that cost happiness? What about the call to persevere in suffering as we've just been talking about? Doesn't that cost happiness? That narrative will blind you to Jesus. It will keep you far. It will make him distasteful, implausible. I don't want that. Why are you blind? Because you see this so well. The truth narrative is that all truth claims are socially constructed or relative, except science with a capital S. And so we just dismiss anything in the Bible because it's not science with a capital S. This narrative will blind you to this. You will come here, you will hear, you'll, your eardrums will vibrate, nothing will get in. Because you're such an ardent believer, a faithful adherent to this narrative. You can't hear this narrative. You can't see Jesus. The freedom narrative, as long as I'm not harming somebody, I should be able to do whatever I want to do. Oh my goodness. You don't want your roommate to live that way, do you? Do whatever they, do whatever they want to do? All of these things are bankrupt, they're incoherent, they make no sense, but we catch them. We're not taught them, we don't study them, we catch them. And these are the things, like the Pharisees' preconceptions about God, cultural conceptions about God, it blinded them to God standing three feet in front of their nose. And it does for us too. So the last place we end is, well then what do you do? Because if you're here and you're blind and you see Jesus, it's indifferent, irrelevant, far away, he doesn't listen to me, He's not interested in my blindness. 
I can't believe things in the Bible. Or you're here and you're like, oh, Ben, I see him, but he's so fuzzy. I'd give anything for a clear vision of him. Here's what you can do. Saving faith is a simple seeing, studying faith. Watch the evolution of this blind man's, I don't, maybe 24 or 48 hours with Jesus. I think it was just a day or two. Watch the evolution. Early on, he calls Jesus, uh, he, it, Jesus is just an acquaintance. Hey, who healed you? A man named Jesus. That's all he knows. A little bit later, they say, who healed you? And he's had time to think. He's been healed. He realizes Jesus is a prophet, too. A little bit later, he says, he's come from God. There's something unique about this. It's not just any old person, any other teacher. Then he says later, the son of man. Do you believe in the son of man? Yes, I believe you're the son of man. And then he ends this by saying, Lord, I believe. Lord and king and master. You see the evolution? You see the baby steps? So if you're at the acquaintance phase with Jesus, and you're like, I don't know who he is. I don't know what he's like. He's really fuzzy. He's really murky, and I still love a lot of this stuff. What do you do? You keep looking at Jesus. You, you hold him with an open hand. You keep coming back here. You keep listening. You keep opening your ears. You keep praying to him, Lord, restore my sight. The Pharisees did not do that. They said, this couldn't be from God. Why? Because we know better. He couldn't be healing you. Why? Because we know better, and we have our view of the Sabbath is the correct view. He's a sinner. Other narratives blinding them. So cry out to Jesus to help you with an open hand. Come back to him and come back to him and come back to him. Saving faith is a seeing, studying, simple faith. In this man, this increasing faith, this sunrise, as it were, at first it's barely a twinkle of light, but three hours later it's the it's the, the noonday sun right above him. It changes his behavior. What does it mean that faith is simple? Jesus says, go to the pool of Siloam, which would have been a five-minute walk around the temple barrier and wash. He just did it, and he was healed. It's a simple faith. And look at the Pharisees' faith. False faith is always overly complicated. It always chases its tail with these stupid details of Let's sit around and philosophize about the finer points of this or that. I'm not saying theology is bad. I'm not saying philosophy is bad. I'm saying when you've mistaken Christianity for debates about Christianity, you've lost it all. It's a complicated, cumbersome, exclusive, off-putting faith. This is a simple faith. Jesus said to go and wash. I'm going to go and wash. It's life-giving they say, oh, the guy says to the Pharisees, it's astonishing. You seem so certain. You know where this guy came from, and yet, why did he just restore my sight? I love it. This guy's been a Christian for like 10 minutes, and he is up there debating the ivory tower and winning. And all they say is, get the heck out of here. Somebody turn his mic off. Friends, here's where we end. I don't know where your line of sight is with Jesus. If it is murky, he's alive. Ask him to lift the veil. If you've fallen in love with these cultural narratives, caught them and they blind you, let's talk. Nathan and Nicole are here. Talk to them. Casey and Trevor and Jeremiah. And, but we're not super special. Talk to anybody around you and say, I've, I've drunk the Kool-Aid on this stuff. I think Jesus is this, that, or the other. Talk. Come back to him. Come back to him. Come back to him and look at who he is. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, um, we need you to open our eyes. We need you to restore our sight.
We need to see you touch us in the place of our pain, in the place of our suffering. We need to see your solidarity with us, that you're not a lecturer or a visiting professor who teaches us about suffering. You suffered for us. We thank you that the way, and we praise you, that the way that you've conquered evil is by absorbing it on the cross and rising up in your resurrection over it, not by, from a distance, snapping a finger and pretending like evil never happened. You dealt with it, and in doing so have freed us. Restore our sight, we pray in your name.